Hello and welcome, I'm Alexander. And I'm Simon. We are still very much knee-deep in tech and we are very far from home. <laughs> Not very far, but far? Farther east than I've ever been. Because we, yeah. we're in Latvia. We are, in Riga. In Riga at um, Atea Global Services. Quite, quite an impressive setup they have here. Yep. And we actually kind of um, run across a colleague of ours. Yes. And a fellow MVP. So we have an Azure MVP with us today. Say hello to the audience. Hi. Good to be here. So you're Matos Rokos. That's correct, sir. You're from Norway. I work in Norway. I'm originally from Czech Republic. Right. So would you consider yourself to be Norwegian or Czech? Jeez, it's kind of hard to ask. Uh, you, you know, that, that it's kind of hard questions, same as uh, people ask me, so where do you live, you know? Yeah. And uh, I'm kind of in between both situations, you know, I have a have a place in Oslo, I have a place in Prague, I have a girlfriend in Prague, and it's kind of, if I answer both, I think that answer is correctly, really. Right, because uh, you, you pretty much have more flying time than some of the pilots going to and fro <laughs> Norway and the Czech Republic, right? Well, actually, you would like that. It's very, it, it, I have a very like data-oriented kind of approach to that. <laughs> oh. So I'm collecting statistics on that. And the last year, it was 116,000 kilometers in the air. 116,000 kilometers just going between the Czech Republic and... No, it was all my flights, really, because okay. I have to fly to other places too, right? Mm -hmm. But... Uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I get it get it in the app, get it with the map and statistics with hours and kilometers, stuff like that. Like I said, data-driven approach, you would like that. Always, always. <laughs> so what do you use to visualize and, and analyze this data set? Yeah, right. And that, that, would, be, that, that would be more kind of consumer-facing, I guess, because that's the thing that the app does for you, right? So, But I guess that you could actually export it somewhere, use maybe something more pro, Ooh. like a Power BI, maybe something like that. You need to take we, a look into that. We definitely do. <laughs> <laughs> so when you're not gathering your own data, what do you do? So I work. Uh, I work with Azure. <laughs> yep. It kind of covers that. No, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, I'm. I'm a cloud solution architect, and uh, and basically I help all my customers with everything cloud related, and that that covers everything from how do we start, how do we begin with it, how do we plan migration. Uh, how do we plan the assessment fit of the current infrastructure and how to divide and conquer in the cloud world pretty much. <laughs> but it goes deeper than that, basically. It goes like this is how everyone started and that's how, what everyone's been doing since 2010 pretty much. But it goes deeper and deeper and basically like I, I really like to work with uh, ISVs, with people who develop their own yeah. software. And uh, uh, I spend some time dedicated purely for ISVs and I help them to transform their application to basically benefit fully from cloud environment. So leaving the infrastructure behind, not thinking about VMs and boxes anymore, but basically evolving into something uh, something multi-tenant, something cloud native with microservices, with breaking up the monolith, uh, with the best possible scalability that cloud can offer. And that's a transformation and transition of its own. So what would you say is the biggest difference between working with an ISV and with a regular customer. The regular, like, sort of IT, yeah, traditional IT, folk. IT, yeah. Exactly. yeah. Okay. Um, well, the IT folks, basically, they are they're usually a little bit of afraid. Uh, RSVs, they have this kind of, usually they have this sort of approach, like, yeah, let's go and get it. Let's try something new. Yep. Uh, 
And traditional guys, they, they need to have that, that learning curve, which sometimes they, they don't really want to have. Yeah. Sometimes they basically would rather stay with their boxes, right? Because that's what they know. That's what, uh, that's what they are used to working with. Yeah. The ISV folks, they tend to try new things more often. However, they don't like to talk to partners that often as a traditional customers, as a traditional yeah. enterprises, right? Because they, they pretty much have that approach like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm quite capable of figuring this on my own. Yep. You're just another annoying sales guy. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then I kind of have to explain that that's not the case and uh, we, that's not how we work. And, and, and it, have, it, it goes quite nice because uh, I, I don't really like the approach when I, uh, when I do the traditional consultancy work. I, I rather prefer like the knowledge transfer when yep. you can actually like grow with your customers. Because the value of, uh, of consultants shouldn't be that you can click the wizard better than the other IT nope. guy, right? And keep him hostage for that. The, uh, the, really, the value should be like, let's talk about your, your, your topic and let's talk about your issues. I will give you my insight, but uh, do whatever you please with that. Yep. And, and let's see how, where it gets us. So would you say that a discussion with an ISV is more knowledge focused yeah, than definitely. sales focused definitely definitely interesting it, it, it's basically like how do you how do you train somebody mm. but also how do you kind of supervise him on his own learning yep how do you kind of mentor him during the process really because they really like to do things on their own so, so would, would mm. you say that you need to establish your your um your ability before they start to listen or oh, totally. how does it work totally like you you need to gain trust and it's a lot harder than with any other customers mm -hmm. so it, it, it's very like uh, you need to become the trusted advisor and more importantly you have to maintain that relationship as a trusted advisor so with with traditional customers they usually have like established partnership with certain organizations and they just call you because they have a contract for yeah. it right yeah and they don't necessarily know if you're going to come there or someone else will, but they're just looking for like specific, simple tasks or problem solutions. Yep. However, the ISV, I would say they usually look into a little bit bigger picture because they, they develop the product of their own and they need to see how it would fit with the, yep. with the later product development. And that would also mean that they are more interested in, in creating a... Um... A partnership with a person that they trust yeah, than a yeah, company yeah per se yeah definitely definitely i would say that it's it, it's sort of like with the, your own car versus rental car right so basically mm. if you have your own car you give it to repair to someone who you really trust who you have a good relationship with sure yeah and perhaps if that guy shows up as knowledgeable and really knows his stuff and you will bring the car to the shop more often for different advices and different, different even small sets of, mm. of, of, of services, right? However, if you have something that you don't really have a relationship, such as, such as you basically buy a third-party product yeah. as an application and you use it sort of like a rental car, you only want it to work and then you need someone if it doesn't work, but you don't pay any extra effort to it, right? It's not your car, it's not your product, it's not nothing of it, not a kind. That's a, that's a very good yeah. analogy, to be honest. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah, I, I, I have to agree. So this episode 
is about cars. The rental car. <laughs> right, episode. the car, yeah. The rental car episode. Because every episode, we never start out with an idea of, of, of a name in mind, but it always just appears out of nowhere. Most of the time, it's a pretty weird name. Okay. But a rental <laughs> car. Yeah. And it usually yeah. appears out of my mouth. It does, <laughs> yes. Just, and yeah. Well, um, and, and this kind of uh, touches on something that we were discussing yesterday when mm. it comes to training and and pretty much keeping up with the fire hose that that tech of today is. So, so how do you keep up? Right. So, I follow up on different different social media, different channels, different people, um, mainly on Twitter. Yeah. Partly on on LinkedIn, although there's lots of lots of things kind of mirror those two. Uh, I read uh, the Azure Product Group Product Group blog. There are actually there are different product groups there. The the main Azure blog you can filter it out pretty nicely. And another thing is that occasionally, uh, and that, that that's purely my way of doing things. I basically email people I know in the product group in terms of trying the new stuff and 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 working on the new things or, or working on the idea that I had. And that's a kind of a perk of being an MVP, right, guys? So so that that's not for everybody, of course, mm. but uh, I would say that most of people are, are especially people developing their own products, are uh, very keen to interact with everyone, really, who uses that. So that's a, always a good way to, to start things. And, yeah. and then you have, like, completely undocumented and unreplicable things of keeping up and that basically you go to the to the product itself or meet the Azure portal or Azure PowerShell or Visual Studio and just try the things that you think that might work. You try it on your own and see where it gets you. Yep. That's probably the best way of, of learning, I would say. At least for me. I'm not saying that it's gonna work for everybody. So pretty much take take the car out and test it to test its it. limits and see test where it breaks. Yeah. That's not nothing we would be encouraging that you do with your rental cars. Or your own cars. Or your own matter. cars. No. <laughs> Drive safe. Yeah. Good good point. Yeah, yeah, just to point things out. Then again, Simon drives a Skoda, so it doesn't matter. Do you right. know do you remember where he's from? Yeah, but do yeah. you know what he's driving? <laughs> and that kind of killed that discussion. <laughs> but um, you, you've been at this for a while. Mm-hmm. We've been at this for a while. And if I was to say that the innovative speed has increased like a lot since, mm. well, since I started, we started with, with stone tablets. That's many, 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 many years ago. And now so, we have Apple tablets. Thank you, Simon. <laughs> Everything is moving at such a fast clip. Mm. Have you ever felt the need to specialize in order to keep up? Or are you able to... Because whenever people come and say, oh, you know, IT, Mm. that means that you can fix their printers or their internet or whatever. That's my mother's approach, definitely. Mine too. Then again, people come and say, oh, you know, Azure. Mm. And it's not that far away from, oh, you know, IT. Yeah. Because what do you do specifically in Azure? And have you felt a, a need to further specialize mm. in order to keep up? So so Azure is a lot different today than like comparing to the situation where I started with it. Mm. When I started with Azure, it, there were like five, six features in it. It has a crazy, ugly Silverlight portal. And it was pretty far from Azure today, really. It was yeah. called Windows Azure at the time. Mm. 
So kind of a traditional Microsoft branding, right? So it was like, even the name was confusing <laughs> because people thought like, yeah, it's like somehow like a remote Windows experience, yep. maybe. No, okay, try another one. And uh, then then just like didn't get it that much. And it was a lot easier to know Azure at that time because if you know the six features, then you can say, yeah, I know Azure, I'm good. Mm. And then it uh, started to grow and started to grow pretty rapidly, right? And I, I'm not sure what kind of hundreds of features we have today and how do you count it in? Because like uh, you can count uh, even the, like a different varieties of specific services, right? Yep. But basically the portal, I mean, when you browse through all services, it's a much richer experience than it ever was. So getting getting that knowledge and getting that experience kind of differs on what level you really want to be focused on i would say that on the high level i can cover a lot of things mm -hmm. in terms of at least like putting up the building blocks but i'm not i'm not a deep expert in it for example i don't i don't feel comfortable in the whole data part i would much rather leave it up to you right sure so uh, but basically, when, when when it comes to the knowledge transformation and the specialization and stuff like that, yep. I started as a traditional IT guy, as a traditional IT consultant. I focused on Windows Server. I focused on System Center. And I grew from infrastructure background. So basically, like, one of the first things that I tried in Azure were actually, like, infrastructure-related. And I started to explore the other parts. But... but uh, about the knowledge transformation, I started to explore more and more automation and infrastructure as code, and that's one of my favorite topics. And I would say that that was what uh, kind of drove me to more DevOps part. From the beginning, it was more ops than dev. Yep. Then it started to more overlap the dev part with, with the infrastructure as code, because like suddenly you could you could have touched something that you knew from like the traditional world, traditional perspective. Mm -hmm. First, still VMs, still boxes, still, still, still stuff that most of people can relate to, like version of Windows Server and how many CPUs you want and um, how how big of a RAM you want. Sure. So sizing, sizing boxes, really. Yeah. But you did it in code, right? And that's what. So so you get, you you can actually like transfer on something that you know. And moving forward, moving forward, suddenly you realize that you don't need these boxes anymore, that basically you are going after individual components and going more after the reason why you needed those boxes in the first place. So, hey, I actually like, uh, I had some sort of integration service on the VM. It was running as a Windows service, deeply dependent on operating system, right? Maybe I don't need that. Maybe if the integration service was grabbing some files out of, uh, out of the file share, then notifying some people over the email and creating some some records in some databases about those and storing them somewhere else, then maybe I can transform that specific process without having a VM. And that goes onto the completely other side of the world and that goes into serverless. And that's what you can today do with cloud, basically, like you can isolate the individual procedures and then we're talking specifically microservice-based approach, right? Because like we care about one thing and we know that that one thing is handled well, but it doesn't do anything else. So we kind of isolate and picks, pick and, and, and pick different building blocks and make them standalone without yeah. the dependencies. And that was pretty much my learning curve, you know, and, and you could probably fit 
container somewhere in between, right? So basically I'm moving from a VM. I still have, let's say the same, uh, same, uh, same service, but I can't go really like full blown cloud native. Maybe I'm not ready for that. Maybe the service is not ready for that. Maybe the vendor is not ready for it. So I'm, I'm still kind of can't scale the whole VM thing, right? It's, it's kind of painful. VM is a monolith. How do you scale monolith? Well, you replicate monoliths. So instead of one monolith, you have two, then you have four. Mm. But it's not exactly the scalability that you have in mind, right? Basically, because you're still scaling a lot of parts underneath it. Yeah. So that's where a lot of people discover containers and say like, yeah, I can, I can actually utilize the same host and splitting it up. Same, same thing that we did with virtualization, really. And it kind of comes with the same reaction as people have towards virtualization. It can be powerful enough. It can be safe enough, right? And and that's another learning curve. Isolating stuff and putting it into into new building blocks, more building blocks, breaking up the monolith, yeah. and then you can just break it further and become somewhere cloud native. Yeah. But uh, that was a journey for me, and that's a journey I try to make with my customers. And I would say that's that's a learning curve today. And I think that that's something I've been doing as well, that to be a very good architect, you need to have something to stand on, something you're really, really good at from the start. Um, so you had uh, System Center yeah. and the traditional data center background, mm-hmm. which still is very much applicable to what we do today yeah. in many cases, and that you could take in contrast to what you want to do today. Mm-hmm. You have... I have, yeah, I have the tra- traditional data stuff, yeah, yep. with the infrastructure tacked on top. Yep. And I find that to be quite a differentiator. Yeah, Because if you, if, if you come from, as you put it, it as your homestead, yep. what you used to do, then you tack on infrastructure or networking yep. or uh, client stuff, whatever, it, it becomes an added value. Yep. And being able to see stuff from different viewpoints makes it so much easier to be a good architect. Mm, yeah. Definitely, but you can't really rely on like one component. You got to combine knowledge, like you mentioned. Yes, exactly. Right. So, for example, my combination was that I, in the system center part, I was really focused on services. Yep. And so basically, like everything in the IT was a service for me, mm. and I helped organizations before cloud. I helped them basically to build the service catalogs and. Uh, work with incident management and, and uh, service request fulfillment and stuff like that and automating procedures yeah. in that. So then you start looking into the IT like services and it's quite easier, at least what was for me, to move to uh, cloud services yep. because they're they are like IT sort of as a service, right? So yep. that that was my point. But you combined uh, different different data parts and then you combined it with a little bit of infrastructure and then yep. you had another knowledge combination. But there, I see a lot of people who, for example, say, even in 2019, they say, I'm DBA. And they have quite hard time of learning. Or they, for example, say, I'm a storage administrator. Yeah. And, and I have even lots of traditional enterprises when we go back to the traditional kind of guys and customers. And they ask me, like, can you help us split out the role-based access control in Azure? So we would have like networking guys and backup guys and storage guys. Yeah, yeah. I usually give them the same look, exactly yeah. <laughs> like the horrified one. And um, and and yeah, and then it kind of goes like into the question like if if you have a storage guy still and he's only focused on storage, 
you let him into cloud where he can provision a storage account in 30 seconds, what he does for the rest of the day. Yeah. So it's the, the knowledge transfer is about the knowledge combination as well because you can't purely rely on being a DBA or storage yeah. administrator in 2019 really. And, and that's if you look at these certifications, you aren't exactly. any longer a storage person or network person. You are an Azure administrator mm. or a Microsoft 365 administrator. You don't necessarily need to know every single thing at depth, but you need to understand how it fits together and how you design and work with different services and combinations. Yeah, key keyword being roles. Yep. And you've touched on it, and we talked about it yesterday. We're coming back to the same question that, unfortunately, fairly few techs ask. Mm. And that's the question, why? Yes. Why are we doing this in the first place? So why take your journey from, from um, servers to um, virtualization to containers? Mm -hmm. Going Following that journey, every step seems like a fairly reasonable next step. Yeah. Because... Containers is basically just virtualization taken yeah. to the next level. Exactly. But if you move back from it and ask the question, why? Why are we doing this? It's not that hard to go from a monolithic server to a microservices mm -hmm. architecture in just one step. Yeah. Because you ask the question, why? Yeah. Why do we need this? What do we want to do? Yeah, that's and exactly that's, that's not a necessarily technical question in itself, but it's a question that, technical people need to ask. Yeah, definitely. And they kind of need to ask it, not just in, in terms of their job, but they should ask, they should be asking the question a lot more life occasions and scenarios. Yes, right? yep. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So why are we doing this? <laughs> because so, we enjoy it. That's, that's, that's a good answer. That's the number one, yeah. Yep. But uh, believe it or not, there are plenty of people who don't. Exactly. <laughs> it's just and, a job for them, right? They yep. uh, The IT, IT thing is from nine to five, and then it's something else. And I think that that's something I tell my customers as well. It's talking about DevOps. Mm. And I try to help our customers really changing how they work with IT. And I think the most, a very important thing to understand is that Dev or Ops are equal. Mm. So you need people that are, and I'm doing air quotes now, mm -hmm. people that are Dev, people that want to push the technology to the next step. Yeah, yeah. But to enable them to do that, you need to have a really good operations side as well, yeah. which may look at their job as something, yeah, I'm going here, like you said, 8 to eight to 5, 9 to 5, and uh, that's what I do. But that enables the development of things as well. Yeah. So we really need to take care of the people that are comfortable doing what they do, may not be as progressive as the more devish people, yeah. but because that, that's something we also need. But you would be surprised how tiny things can actually like affect this DevOps approach, right? Yeah. Because like there are other organizations and that I meet and they say like, yeah, we do DevOps. And they, of course, like they have, they have like completely wrong perception of what DevOps is because yep. they, for example, say like, yeah, we do DevOps, we have a tool for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's an app for that. And there's yeah. an app for that, right? Sort of like things. So, so I always try to explain it. It's like it's a combination of people, tools, procedures and processes and all yeah. combined but even even when you explain that then you kind of notice small things like they for example take you for the office tour and they say here on the left we got ops people and here behind the corner we got our deaf people 
And that's it's, it's a simple, small thing, right? But how mm. do you have DevOps if those people don't sit together? Then you still kind of separate them. And even when I have meetings with those type of customers, they they go like, "Yeah, I'm 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 Dev DevOps team lead, and here sits our ops guy, yep. and he sits on the other side of the table." And, and even from these kind of like the uh, like types of body language, really, or like <laughs> placement of people, you can see that. The true DevOps doesn't really work in that kind of organization because you still kind of encourage it worked on my machine sort of behavior. Yeah, it's someone else's problem now. It's and, that guy over there. Yeah, and, and then we come back to the whole notion of why. How yeah. do we integrate Dev and Ops people? Take in in your yep. Simon's idea of of the the Ops people that do nine to five, just as an example. Why do your work matter? Yeah. Why does whatever you do matter for the next guy mm. and getting everybody on board yeah, because even if if they aren't perhaps as passionate as other people which needs ev- to be fine yes yeah, which yeah. needs to be fine but ev- you can most just, people you can, i've met mm. really want to make a difference they are proud of what they do mm. they are ne- necessarily not passionate about it but they are proud of it and it's important for them to do a good job. Mm. But at the same time, you can be just lazy. That can be yeah. your motivation, right? It's a great motivation to yeah. have. Sure. And sure. even if you are a dev person or ops person, it's laziness is still great motivation to create DevOps because yep. if you're deaf, your job is basically to create new things yep. and bring them to the market in the fastest possible way. Because you got your your project manager standing behind you, and you got your Kanban board, and yeah. and your tasks are not really moving the way anyone else expecting, right? Stuff stuff like that. So you gotta bring stuff fast. But then you got ops people, and they have to bring they have to build the stable stuff, right? They make they have to make that stuff stable and stabilized, and and keep it that way because then they get the help from users, yeah. saying like this thing doesn't work. What do you do with that? I had an outage yesterday. And then they kind of blame each other, right? And in a classic DevOps world, that doesn't really doesn't really work that way because you kind of collaborate on mutual yep. goal mm. of keeping things both fast and stable yep. and keeping the user satisfied. So so instead of play, playing the blaming game from dev or ops perspective, you can make life of both easier and your main driver can be just laziness yep. because... You don't have to chase people anymore. You don't have to blame people anymore. Because everybody has a stake in the game. Yeah, yeah. and the goal is the same. Yeah, yep. and there we go again. The goal, i.e. the why. Yeah, exactly. So why is the question? And then it goes kind of in, into another way as well. And that's uh, like you can you can do cloud-related management in a non-agile, non-DevOps way. But it doesn't give you full benefit there. No, not at all. Yeah, exactly. So, but th- that's that also touches on on a very interesting discussion. So, and I'm pretty sure that you've found yourself in the same situation. A classic company comes and say, "We want to get to the cloud." Unfortunately, they still have the mentality of the classic servers, that kind of old old school, if we mm-hmm. say, and especially on the data side. Just because something works, if you pull it up by its roots from on-prem and put it in the cloud, does not mean that you get the benefits. Definitely. Yeah. And in, in in my case, on my side of the fence, 
it hurts even more because the data volumes are so big. What kind of issues do you see along the same lines on, on your respective sides of the fence? Oh dear, Simon is thinking. Simon's thinking so I can take that one in the meantime. Go. Yeah. <laughs> well, for, I, I would say Simon's stuff is like more user-focused and user-centric, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of easier to spot the value there because yeah. you, you can really have the value-driven proposition in there basically. Like, uh, and in my case, it's much mm. easier to know the actual cost. Yeah. Since I kind of only have fixed pricing per month per user. Right. So it's much oh, right. easier. To, that, right. That's a tricky one in my world. Yeah. Because usually what the, these kind of type of customers that you described, what, what, uh, what they usually ask you for is the first thing. Mm. It's like, hey, we want to move to cloud, price it up. And they send you Excel spreadsheets. Yeah. And this is like, yeah. hey, this is, this is my current infrastructure. In the next column, please fill how much it's going to cost me in the cloud over next yeah. few years. Or just per month or stuff like that. And that's, that's uh, well, I used to do that a couple of times mm. when I started before I realized how, how wrong it is. Mm. Because like I, I came from the traditional infrastructure stuff basically and that's what every hoster does, right? Yep. You give them a list of servers and they say, yeah, 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 this is the, we got a SKU for that. Yeah. This is our awesome server and this is what it costs per month. And, and in cloud it doesn't work that way and basically I, I always try to stop everyone doing that because that, that's how you lose the customer in the, in the first few seconds. Yeah. He sees the table and he sees like crazy number in there because you calculate 24-7 VM run. Yep. And if you do it that way, it will be, in the, in the best possible scenario, it will be equally expensive to on-prem. Yep. And in most case scenario, in most scenarios, it will be more expensive than on-prem. And it, even if you would be willing to pay that price, and say, okay, it's infrastructure, it's infrastructure is expensive, I gotta do that. Then what was exactly your benefit of moving to the cloud then? Exactly. And I think in my in my area, it's it's more about not especially moving to cloud services, but more understanding how it relates to other part of the digital workplace, which many forget. So if we're moving from SECM to Intune or from an on-prem exchange to Exchange Online. What else do we need to ensure works to get the most out of that experience? Take networking, for example. Currently, um, I'm working with a couple of customers that have challenges distributing content on Wi-Fi because their networking team haven't been on board with any of the design of the actual workplace solution. So that's more what I'm struggling with um, Basically, like I said, because my costs are so much easier to calculate in many cases. Mm. And you get a list. This is what you get. This is, these are the exact services that you get included in this licensing SKU. And it's kind of hard to do anything. I don't currently have a next step. So when you're in Office 365, you don't have any next thing to go to. You can only add and implement more services inside of Office 365. But then again, correct me if I'm wrong, many times when you sell an E3 or E5 license, yep. people seldom use a tenth of what they actually yep. bought for starters. Yeah. So yeah. that would be your next step. Yeah, yeah that, that's, but yeah. it's not the evolution no. that we can see when it comes to servers, virtualization, 
yeah. microservices. Yeah. And so that's on. the thing. Like, if, if somebody gives you that table, the ugly table, or right, the ugly yeah. spreadsheet, mm. it's like, hey, this is my infrastructure today. And uh, I don't care. Yeah, right. But basically, you don't care. But imagine that you have to put something in there. Yeah. And you start to think. Mm. You should. You shouldn't put anything there. You should tell customers it's wrong. Right. But uh, but you you start to think about like, yeah, what? Where can I possibly take this? Right. And then the next step can be like virtual machines. Another step might be containers. Another step might be like platform services. Another step might be completely serverless. And it's never like the straight line, right? It's like combination of all of that. Yeah. yeah. But in the traditional IT world, basically, like the migration doesn't end. It's yeah. you will still migrate things. Basically, like even when you're in in Azure world, uh, I got a bunch of customers who went, for example, to like Service Fabric, right? And they started to create microservices on Service Fabric. And suddenly Microsoft came with uh, Service Fabric Mesh and said like, hey, this is our managed offering of Service Fabric. And the customers were like, okay, so I just migrated stuff over to Service Fabric. I thought I'm done with migrating stuff. Yeah. Like, should I migrate <laughs> no. to the new offering then? Or should I keep it? So I guess we will be migrating for our lives really. But uh, again, it goes back to the driver why. Yeah, yeah and I, yeah. I think that that's, um, that's a top tip right there. Ask the question why and prepare for migrating for the rest of your life. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. And we're actually running out of time. Yep. So we're, why we're running out of time <laughs> and we're migrating. Now let's just, yep. whatever. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for coming on the show, Matosh. My pleasure. And see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.